So last week I was outside of the, uh, this room in the hallway and there were three little girls playing tag. It was late in the afternoon. Found out afterwards that two were five and one was four years of age. And so the, the four-year-old, a little bit slower, was being tagged and she was it a lot. And finally she tagged someone else and she was being chased. And at the last moment, right before she was touched, she reached out and touched the wall and she says, I'm at home base. And five-year-old said, well, what do you mean home base? Do you mean the, the whole wall's home base? Yes. So, and then she said, but, but you didn't say it was home base. And she said, I was thinking it before I said it, though. <laughs> and I, I was standing there just so cute. I mean, so cute. And I thought, really, what's the basis of believing what we believe? What's the basis we say to one another on this Palm Sunday as we look, go into Passion Week and look forward to Easter Sunday that we have peace with God. We say that if we die, we go to heaven instead of a place of judgment. We say that we have significance and what we do right now counts forever. So what's the basis of that? And the answer is found throughout scripture. We're gonna be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter four and five primarily. And the basis for saying these things is in part verse 21 of chapter five. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That when the Lord looks at us in his triune majesty, he sees us through the lens of what Christ did on the cross for us as our substitute. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system by his one act of obedience. So, so if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, we do not lose heart. You say, well, Paul, why, why do you not lose heart? Right into a suffering church. And he says, well, we don't lose heart because, verse 15, or verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. And he says in chapter 5, verse, verse 1, we know. See that, that clarity, that certainty? We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. He says, but th there is a tent in the heavens, no groaning, no pain. Now, how do you know this? Verse 21, chapter 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he says in chapter 5, verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But, but, but right now, in the present context, we are of good courage. Well, why do you have good courage? Verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Christ we might be viewed as, seen, declared the righteousness of God. Or chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him, what he did in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, 
Since we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Well, why do we seek to persuade others? Why, why do we live with the sense of calling and destiny? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so we live out of gratitude to the Lord. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing. It goes like this. This is the threefold truth upon which our faith depends. And with this joyous cry, worship begins and ends. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That, that's our cry. And that, that's the basis of our hope and our joy and our peace. Behold the majesty of the cross, behold the fulfillment of the ages in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul talks about the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He says this, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the Old Testament promises for signified the coming of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. All the Old Testament prophets looked and longed and made ready. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things in which angels long to look. Angels long them to look in these things. Why, why do we say this with certainty and joy? God made him who knew no sin on Good Friday to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why we say in Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Christ. And so Calvin could write about this. And he said the following, Faith is not a naked knowledge, either of God or of his truth, but it is a sure knowledge, a certainty of God's mercy, which is received from the gospel. Because of that, we have peace of conscience with regard to God, and rest is given to the mind. And so I want to look at this passage, broadly speaking, and bring out three principles regarding the basis of our hope and how we live and why we live based upon this. The, the first is this. Church, we, we live with sober-minded joy and certainty. That's kind of a different phrase. Sober-minded joy and certainty. Sober-minded because chapter 5, verse 10 says that, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the way we've lived our lives. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade men. But so sober-minded, sober-minded. Okay? but also great joy. Verse 9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him because when we go to heaven, we'll be clothed with an imperishable body. So, so sober-minded joy and certainty. Sober-minded. So, so we live as called out people. The passage says later that nobody lives to himself alone, but we belong to the Lord. No, nobody. So, so we live as called out people who will give an account to God. In the first hour, I was sitting here and heard their children sing and 
came under the palm branches, and as I listened to them sing, I see, saw some little ones in the hallway, brand new newborn babies. And I thought about the, the words of Christ in Matthew 18 where he says, if, if, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depth of, of the sea. And I just, this thought came to me that I haven't fully developed. And I, I just thought about the horror of this German airline crash in the side of the Alps in France and how we now believe that the co-pilot locked the pilot out of the cockpit and intentionally flew that plane into the side of the mountain, killing 154 people. And, and the, the first thought that comes to my mind is what type, type of, of, of demonic mindset seizes a person and lets him do something like that? You say, 154 people. Listen, let me tell you, we are all flying a 747. You don't live to yourself. You're impacting people you don't even realize you're impacting. And, and so because of that, we live with a sober-mindedness and a sense of accountability. When you come to Christ, you realize, I don't belong to myself. I belong to him. And so it, it fills you with a sober-mindedness, but also a sense of, of joyful certainty. I belong to him. And so it says here, because of that, we know the fear of the Lord. This is not the, the fear of rejection. It's the fear of, of a son who wants to please his father. The same word is used in chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul says, Since then we have these promises. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of the fear of the Lord. The fear of a son who says, I, I, I want to please Abba, Father. Jerry Bridges, in his book entitled The Joy of Fearing God, says this, to truly fear God means to be in awe, see, awe of God's being and character as well as in awe of what he has done for us in Christ. Now, to be in awe means to be overwhelmed with feelings of reverence and admiration and worship produced by that which is grand or sublime or extremely powerful. To be almost overwhelmed. Ask myself, do I stand in awe of the grace of God found in Christ? See, so use the word awe sparingly. The word for awe really belongs only to the living God. Deep pan pizza is not awesome. A, 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 a car that doesn't bump when you hit a pothole is not awesome. It's a good car with a good shock system. Only God is awesome. In, in, first, or in Psalm 130, this is what the scripture says. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, we stand in awe of God because in the fullness of time, the eternal God left his heavenly home lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins. Therefore, the gospel fills us with awe, worship, adoration, joy, peace. So, so we live as called out, joy-filled people of certainty. Secondly, when you look at this passage, I say, I say to myself, this passage says the pressure is off. The pressure of trying to work hard to please God. 
because we never can please God. What we can never do for ourselves, God did for us in Christ on the cross. We add nothing to our salvation. If you've been a Christ follower for one minute, as we were singing these hymns, you said, I need to trust the one who died on the cross for my sins. I can't do it on my own. Sin has separated me from God. I, I, I understand that. I call out God. In Christ, have mercy on me as I run to you. If you've been a believer one minute or 45 years, you are fully complete in God's sight. He sees you through the cross. So, so the, the pressure is off. Paul says we do that which is from the heart, verse 12b. He says, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised from the dead. And so the pressure's off. There's freedom there. There's joy there. There are people sitting here today who, who you've heard the gospel, you've, you've believed the gospel, you still fall back into this your hearts heart are springing to think, I've got to do, do, do to really be loved of God. That is not true. We do what we do out of gratitude because we are loved. We don't do to be loved. We do because we are loved. It's the love of the child that cries out, Abba, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the problems in Corinth was that there was a group of people that came in, and some people called them super apostles, and they made fun of Paul. They said, Paul... He's not very attractive, and when he speaks, he's not very impressive, and, but, but we are impressive, and we've got it all together, and you should listen to us and not listen to Paul. And so Paul says this about comparing. He says, chapter 10, verse 12, he says, uh, now, not, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Listen to me. When you don't understand the gospel of grace, you try to give yourself to the gospel of self-justification. And when you give yourself the gospel of self-justification, you compare yourself to other people to make yourself look better. And there's freedom in the gospel. Uh, so, there is a basketball tournament going on right now, even as we speak. It's very strange. It's true. Last night, I sat down to watch some basketball, and every station worked on my television except the channel where the basketball game was. It kept going in and out and like snow, and I said, okay, all right, Lord, I'm going to watch it. So I didn't watch it. But there's a great basketball tournament going on, and... There is a team that played last Friday night, got beat, called NC State. And they are the Wolfpack. Right? NC State, I was talking to a basketball coach who's sitting here right now last week, who's, who's a college coach, and I won't call his name, but Barclay was talking to me. And, and, and he said, uh, he said, well, I've enjoyed watching NC State this year. He says, but man, they are schizophrenic. That's the word he used. And that means you're here and you're there. You're here and you're there. You're up and you're down. You're here. So here's NC State. This year, NC State beat Villanova, the number one team in their region. They beat Duke when, when Duke was undefeated. They beat North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Very impressive. But they lost to Wofford. And Wofford's a good school, but they're not top 25. They lost to, to George Tech and Wake Forest this year, who were having horrible years in basketball. 
The week before they went to the tournament, they played in the ACC tournament, and Duke ran them out of the gym. It was embarrassing. And then they came back and beat Villanova. So they're up and down. Up. And so I, as I listened to that, I thought about that, and I thought, I am NC State basketball. You know? I'm up and down and up and down. And, and listen, so are you. So is the Apostle Paul. He said, the good things I don't, or the bad things I don't want to do, I sometimes do. And the good things I want to do, I don't always do. So, so what do you do when you are NC State basketball this year? What do you do when you're up and you're down? But God's grace, you know, the, the downs get a little bit not so down. And, but but what, what do you do? There, there's a hymn that's in the, the worship guide that I just, just, just preaches the gospel. I love this hymn. It's entitled, Before the Throne of God Above. It says this, when Satan tempts me to despair. And there's a lot of tempting to despair in our lives. Let's be honest. Just our secret thoughts alone get us there, right? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. And there's a lot of guilt there. What do you do? You try to justify yourself? Do you compare yourself to person A or person B? No. Here's what they say. Upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. It's the gospel. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, reckoned free, counted free, declared righteous. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel. Let's sing that. Learn that hymn and sing it. See, the pressure is off. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God the just, satisfied, sees me through the cross. Yesterday we had a funeral here. It was, I mentioned one last week, another one this week. And a 44-year-old mother, children age 7 and 10, wonderful husband, died of cancer. It's just so sad. Yeah. But the family in the Lord and the father, husband requested that amazing grace be sung. And so Two of our women sang Amazing Grace. And really, Amazing Grace basically is the unofficial hymn of God's people. Written by a slave trader, converted slave trader, a man who was vastly immoral, a man who had incredible guilt named John Newton. And he wrote the hymn that you, you hear sung everywhere, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's just the gospel. Amazing grace, grace that saved a wretch. I'm not saved by self-effort. I'm not saved by pilgrimages. I'm not saved to going to meetings. I'm saved by the outstretched arm of the living God, and the hand that touches me is pierced. And so John Newton died at age 82, and, and the day, a few, or the week he died, he was on his deathbed, a friend went to visit him, and their conversation was recorded for posterity, and John Newton said this, he said, I'm 82, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is the great Savior. 
Amen. See, when you get that, church, the pressure is off to perform, to earn. You walk in gratitude. Thirdly, the new reality has come. Not only is the pressure off, the new reality has come. Verse 16 and following says this, uh, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Stop. Paul says, you know, I, I used to look at Christ and say he was a wandering, peripatetic teacher who was misleading people, and I judged him according to the flesh, but now I see that he is the eternal God in the flesh. And so I don't look at people anymore as, as just passing landscape. Now I see that, that, that people have eternal significance as well. He says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given us this, this ministry of, of reconciliation. So, so the, the, the newness has come. So, so the question, I, I often look at people, I look at myself, I look at our church, I look at, and I, I, I say, you know, how do people change? Because I want to change. I, I want to change. I want to be more filled with the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to be more like Christ. I, I want to change. And so I think of uh, 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, that says, you therefore, my son, be be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So what, what, what does that mean? Well, he divides it in, in chapter 1. He says in verse 8, he says, Therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Listen. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, so, so you say, how do we change? You're strong in the grace that's in Christ. Well, what does that mean? You walk in the gospel and you live out of the gospel and you glory in the cross and you live out of the cross and this is the way you live. And, and so when, when Paul is, is talking to these people about how they change in 2 Corinthians, he, he talks about the old way when the law was read, there was a veil over their hearts. And then he says this, which is the capstone of his argument. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, for, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, so Paul says, you, you change because the glory of God shines in the person of Christ. Now, if you study church history, uh, and these, are, these are, are dear people, but they began the wrong place. I, I just, let me explain. There's something called, a group called mystics. And they have a lot of good things to say, but, but here's, here's my problem with the mystics. If you ask a mystic, let me mention some of them. St. John of the Cross, some of you may have read him. Teresa of Abia, uh, Francis Felanon, William Law, um, and they're modern-day people that verge there. If you ask a mystic, how do we achieve closeness to the triune God? 
they say, well, there's a ladder you have to climb. A, a ladder, and it involves a lot of self-effort. And to make it simple, uh, they would say, let's say there are three rungs to the ladder. The first rung is purgation. You purify yourself of every known sin. You walk in holiness, which is biblical. You, you, you do this, but you do that through, through self-effort to somehow get in God's presence. And so you, you go through uh, holy pilgrimages, or you beat yourself, or you go on long fasts and vigils and all this kind of stuff. Which is what Martin Luther did, if you ever studied his life. He was all involved in purgation. He would beat himself, and he wouldn't eat, and he would confess every sinful little sin. So purgation. The, the second is when you've really cleansed yourself, then there's illumination. You, you are illumined by God because you're pure. He comes to you because your heart is pure. There's some truth to that. But you, and then the, the, the ultimate phrase is union. You're able to have this beatific vision and to see God for who he is. So it's purgation, illumination, union. See, I don't agree with that. There's no ladder. Jesus is the ladder. You know, Christ paid it all. Now, I want to go deeper into Christ and know him, but but, but I, I do all that out of the glory of knowing the cross. I was with a man in India preaching to a group of people in India, uh, up in northern India a few years ago, and he says, I'm just tormented. I just don't know if I'm doing enough for the Lord. I don't know if I've given it. I, I just, I feel like I've got to do this. I said, he says, I, I don't really sense his smile on my life. I said, what have you been reading? And I'm not being critical of this man, but he's a good man, but he says, some, he said, I've been reading William Law. And and I said, there's your problem. It says, don't read William Law. Read the Apostle Paul. Read the Gospel. It's not a ladder where you ascend to God by self-effort. You, you live out of the greatness of the glory of the wonder and the majesty of Christ. Example, when I was a young believer, I got involved in a group of the Navigators, blessed my life, did scripture memory, and one of the first verses I memorized was John Chapter 14, verse 21, where it says this. He that has my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself unto him, or disclose myself to him. And so you, you, you I memorize that verse, and I go, boy, that, that is powerful. I need to walk in obedience. True. And as you walk in obedience, you taste more of Christ. True. But, but, but boy, you got to study in context. Let me read a couple of verses before John 14, 21. John 14, 21, all by itself, would kind of put us on the, the works track, potentially. Okay, listen. Listen to verse 18. Christ says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Stop. John 16, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I am going to the Father. Because if I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on you. Okay? So I'm going to leave his orphans. He says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, 
and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. So you see, to me, the obedience in this passage is the overflow of understanding the glorious outpoured Holy Spirit and my union with Christ. Christ is in the Father eternally. I am in Christ and he is in me. As you understand that and rejoice in that and sing about that and whistle about that and think about that, obey. You see that? Instead of just obey, just understand the glory of who you are in Christ. Understand the cross. Understand that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So, so this holy week, behold the greatness of Christ. To quote the hymn I quoted earlier, the next stanza says, or the fourth stanza says, This is a threefold truth, and if we hold it fast, this will change us and bring us home at last. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Now, let me give you some application here, very quickly. So this week, as you pray and seek the Lord in Holy Week, and it should be a, a, a week of reflection and thanksgiving, First of all, ask yourself, do I have only a cognitive, bare, mental understanding of Christ, or am I really seeing him with the eyes of my heart? And that's very, I know that's very subjective, but, but, but Paul prayed that in Ephesians 3, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. It's not just a mere knowledge. It is a certainty that we're loved of the Father because of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so cry out, God, I, I want to know more than just facts. I want to experience you in my life. Number two, some people here do not understand the pressure is off. You can never, ever do anything to add to your standing in Christ. You just can't. You're complete in him. That's, therefore, you don't compare yourselves. You don't. And so when, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, what do you do? Upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now that is beautiful. And, and so the pressure is off. Walk in liberty and say, God, this week forgive me, forgive me for trying to earn your favor. I, I receive the favor that is mine because of the cross by faith. And thirdly, pray God change me. Let me tell you something. It is impossible to stand at the foot of the cross and to gaze at the Savior who's dying for me and to not be forgiving. I, I believe that. It, it, it is difficult to stand at the foot of the cross and to gaze at the glory of Christ and be filled with arrogance. How do you change and conquer things? You go deeper into the reality of all that God is for us in Christ. You don't climb a ladder. Jesus is the ladder. So may God give us grace this Easter week. Let's, let's pray. 
Lord, this, this day we thank you for the glory of the cross and the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that on the basis of the simple and yet profound gospel, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you that you look at us not through our performance, but through the reality of Christ. Thank you that we live out of gratitude and joy to honor you. So, so we bless your name today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, this, this passion, this week of, uh, this Holy Week as we approach Good Friday and Easter, uh, speak to us and change us and move in us to be your people. Blessed be your name. In Christ's name, amen.